Acts 14. Father, we are uh, so grateful that we can celebrate the reality that we are your children by faith. We thank you, Lord, that we are blessed because of the gospel, that we who are not a people, now we're a people. We who were orphans had gone our own way and refused to have you as our King and Lord and Master. We thank you that your love has been shown to us to draw us to yourself and to choose us, to elect us, to claim us as your own and to give us a new heart. We thank you for your amazing, gracious work through the gospel. And now we pray today, Lord, that you would give us insight and understanding as to how we can be a people who continually uh, seek to glorify you, not just to say that we glorify you, but to actually do so in practical ways in our everyday life. And so we ask that you would teach us, Lord, through your word, make it come alive to us, we pray, and apply to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll begin with a question today, a question that's rather straightforward. A question that says, what ministry assignment did Jesus give to his to this church to be completed during that time frame between Jesus' first coming, that is the first advent of Jesus Christ, what is the church to be doing between that moment and when Jesus comes at the second coming at his second advent? Well, if you've been with us, and hopefully you are aware that uh, the book of Acts starts off with a very clear explanation of what the church was, is to be doing. And if you know your uh, chapter 1 there, verse 8, you know that the, um, Jesus commissioned his disciples to be witnesses, both in Jerusalem, remember we started that, Jerusalem and Judea, all Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And instead of gathering like-minded people into one centralized place to worship, which at the time when Jesus gave that commissioning, it was Jerusalem, right? They were all to sort of gather there for centralized worship. Now, the gospel of grace is to be scattered in ever wider circles among all sorts of people. And so the, another way of looking at those concentric circles was to say, Jews, Jewish people, and then there was the Jewish and Gentile mixture of people, Samaritans, and then just Gentiles, people who have no connection at all with Jewish people. The gospel was to go to all. And gospel ministry will one day culminate. It will come to this dramatic conclusion one day in a glorious convocation when Jesus Christ is glorified as the only one worthy of honor, the only one worthy of glory. Why? Because Revelation 5 says that Jesus was slain, he died, and he purchased for the Father with his blood people from every tribe, every language, every people group, from every nation, and he has made them to be a kingdom and a priests to our God. So that the end point of the ministry that Jesus began to give the church and then the culmination of that at the end when Jesus comes back, it's all going to finally conclude with Jesus Christ being glorified and praised for what He has done. He is the one who deserves all glory and praise. So 
gospel ministry, as we said last week, was never designed around the objectivity, around the, obje- the objective, excuse me, of attaining some sort of self-fulfillment. It's not about you and me having our dreams fulfilled. It's always been about pointing all of the people of our world to the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. So last week we began this two-part series looking at the 14th chapter of Acts. And I'm going to show you in your notes there as we just sort of review quickly there uh, what we noted in the first missionary journey. We've got the Apostle Paul uh, working together along with Barnabas. John Mark has sort of uh, backed away and gone back home. And so we looked at six characteristics. We've been looking for six characteristics of God-glorifying ministry. The first we noticed last week was proclamation of the gospel of grace. And to do so with persistence and courage. Boy, time after time they kept saying things that weren't necessarily popular, but they were true and needed to be told. Verses 1 to 7 of chapter 14. Then we noticed in verses 8 to 18 there was a passionate zeal for God's honor. You remember they began to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they said, no, no, you're not to worship us. You worship God. And so they kept trying to give glory to him instead of themselves. And thirdly, they were persistent despite all the tribulations and troubles they ran into. And we talked last week about the fact that Paul was stoned and they left him for dead. It's amazing. And he went on anyway and kept on preaching, even going back through some of those same towns. So pick it up here with me in chapter 14 of Acts verse 21, page 1315 in your pew Bible. Really urge you to follow along here because what we want to always see is are we proclaiming what God says or are we proclaiming what I think? And we always want to be careful to notice the scriptures and what it says. Verse 21, Acts 14. And after they, it's Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, he's talking about Derby. And he had made many disciples. They turned, returned to Lystra, a city they'd already been to, and Iconium, and to Antioch. See, they're, they're reversing course, going back to the place where they originally started there in Antioch, Syrian Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't sound like a health and wealth gospel, does it? Many tribulations. Well, you don't hear the health and wealth gospel preacher saying that. Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, when I got to that verse, I concluded to myself, here's another indicator of gospel ministry that's God-glorifying, and that is this. We find here a pattern of putting in place, the pattern of putting in place a plurality of leaders, spiritual overseers, people who are in charge of the ministry of the gospel in a local area, local church, a plurality. Every church needs godly leaders. God never intended for a local church to remain leaderless. It's like having a boat with no rudder. Every church, is, is, God intends to have godly leaders. And we find the pattern now in the New Testament, a pattern that I believe is designed to specifically glorify God and not become a man-centered leadership, like one key person 
who is, who's got everything. They have all the control, they have all the ideas, they have everything entrusted to them, and they are put on a pedestal as being the person that's going to make things successful. No, that's not what you find in the New Testament. What we find the pattern here is that it benefits not only the local church, but it glorifies God to see a plurality of spiritual leaders in each church. Did you notice in verse 23, very carefully reading it now, when they, Paul and Barnabas, had appointed, what's the next word? Elders, plural. Elders, plural. In my Bible, I've underlined the S. It's, it's significant. Elders, for them, in every church. So the text does not say they appointed one elder in each church. The text does not say they appointed one elder to oversee all the churches. Multiple spiritual leaders were put in place in each church. Now, I know some of you might say, oh, come on, this is just one incident. Uh, you're making too much of this one verse. You're trying to prove a pattern with just one verse of Scripture. All right, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians 1, verse 1. Keep your finger right there. A few pages over, page 1395, your pew Bible. First chapter Philippians, Paul indicates who he's writing to, and he writes the letter to the church in Philippi. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Notice the plural. Overseers and deacons. And by the way, the word there, overseers, is the word episkopos. Sounds like Episcopal Church, right? That's where they get the name, episkopos, overseers. The word that we read there in Acts, chapter 14, by the way, was the word presbyteros, where you get the word Presbyterian. That's where they get that word from. And you say, well, notice the plurality of leadership here. Now, are we talking about two different positions? Presbyteros, Episcopus, those people, overseers and elders, are they two different roles? No, they're not. I won't take a long time to show you this, but in our scripture reading from Acts chapter 20, at the beginning of that passage, we look there, verse 17, it says that Paul gathered all of the elders together, so he's speaking to this group of elders, Presbyteros, and then he says, and you, as all you men who gather here, you are to overseers of the flock of God. You are the episkopos. It's the same word. They're used interchangeably. It's not two different positions in the church. I won't take a lot more time to explain that, but that's just very clear if you look at the text. And in my Bible, I've circled the word in Acts uh, 20, for, uh, 17, and I've circled the word in Acts 20, 28, and showing that they're used interchangeably in the same passage. What's my point? One more I'll add is further evidence of the plurality is Titus chapter 1. When Paul writes to Titus, his understudy, he's saying, listen, Titus, I'm urging you to appoint elders, plural, in every city. Plural elders in every city. In other words, it's expected that there will not just be one spiritual leader, but multiple ones. And what I understand there is that the intent of God is to have a shared local church leadership. Having one authoritative person ruling over a local church is foreign to the New Testament. 
What, what's God glorifying about utilizing a plurality of spiritual leaders and oversight, overseers in local church? There are numerous reasons why I think it glorifies God. I'd like to make several suggestions to you, and I'm borrowing these from a helpful book called Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strouch. Strouch, however you say his name, S-T-R-A-U-C-H. Now, you won't be able to get all these down. I'm sorry, I should have given to your notes, but just listen as I, as I give you several of these. If you have a plurality of leadership, that is not just a one-man show, but multiple spiritual leaders in a church, it supports the understanding that Jesus alone is the head of the church. So if you have multiple ones, no one's going to put a person in that role. That will always be a role for Jesus. And under Jesus, you'll have multiple uh, people sharing the leadership role in the local church. Secondly, a plurality of elders and leaders lessens the chance for pride and tyranny in their office. It guards against one person who might have this strong personality, a person who can rise up and exercise at some point some sort of dictatorial you know, uh, reign or dictatorial rule over the, over the people of God. And, and, and again, multiple leaders helps to prevent that. A plurality of elders will lighten the load so that it doesn't fall on one person to do everything, but there's a shared responsibility among peers. That's such a blessing in our church. You know, we, we have multiple elders who have multiple responsibilities. It's not all falling on me. And if it did, then that means there are going to be some real weak areas because I'm not going to be able to do all those things well. And I remember I felt, followed a, a guy, in, uh, a pastor uh, in a church in Virginia, and he was Mr. Do-It-All. And boy, did he have big shoes to fill. And I let, I let him know right now, I am not going to do everything he did. That's not appropriate for me to do everything. He did all the visiting. He did all of the, he would turn the heat on. He did the bulletin. He did everything. I'm like, why do they need a secretary? The guy typed his own bulletin. Once I met the secretary, I knew why. But anyway, uh, the point is shared responsibilities among multiple leaders is a great thing. It glorifies God to see the multiple gifts being utilized by a number of people. Uh, there's more I could say about that, but I believe this is a, a tendency why um, God-glorifying ministry is incompatible with autocratic, dictatorial individuals who try to build their own kingdom, who demand that they have absolute authority to do whatever they think God would lead them to do. And I, I'm, um, I've obviously, many of you have heard Jesus warned about leaders who have authority to lord it over other people. And I think that's a danger. And obviously you've heard the quote by John Acton who says, power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And so people who have all the power in a church in one person oftentimes leads to uh, things that are not God-glorifying but oftentimes being man-centered. Um. There's a lot more I could say here at this point, but we know that God also is glorified when, he, when there's a plurality of leadership in the church among men who are godly in their person, in their character. And so Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 help to explain what those kind of character traits would look like. And according to 1 Peter chapter 5, elders are called by God to shepherd the flock of God voluntarily, not motivated by money, 
not lording it over those allotted to their charge. In other words, we're being called to be people who serve as Jesus served, servants whose lives are examples to the flock in the local church. And I believe that God is honored when those leaders provide that spiritual oversight and they do so cooperatively, they do so demonstrating collegiality with each other, that they do so partnering with mutual respect for their fellow leaders. And I believe that when that happens, the church begins to see how people can agree and to disagree and to work together toward a harmonious goal of honoring Christ, making sure that gospel ministry is not uh, harmed and ruined by people's egos and getting their own way and battles that are waged oftentimes because of that. All right, number, uh, point number five. Isn't it amazing? It's point number five, but I've just started. So uh, aren't you glad I didn't go back through all six there? All right, so number five, if we continue looking at verse 23. Not only do they appoint a plurality of leaders there in every church, verse 23, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, as I meditate over that verse, you can interpret it two different ways. Some people interpret that as the praying over them having to do with just the elders. And I understand why they would do that. But I have understood that to mean that they're praying over the entire churches that they're leaving behind, including the elders. And the reason I say that is because he emphasized the end of the verse, in whom they had believed. He commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In other words, here are these, all these believers so he's commending all of them to the Lord. That's the way I'm understanding it. We, we, we may disagree. I think my point's still valid. Here's my point number five. There's a prayerful concern, a prayerful concern that God would sanctify each member of a local church. Surely that's God glorifying. Wouldn't you agree? There are false teachers, people who would claim to be followers of Jesus, Outwardly, that's what they are talking about. And they would insist, if you ask them, that they would be mostly concerned about the people under their care. But the truth is that false teachers are actually devoted to their own self-advancement. They take advantage of the people that are under them, primarily to benefit themselves. And that's why Paul was so upset with the false apostles there in 2 Corinthians that he's trying to um, correct the Corinthians from following. So here are Paul and Barnabas, and they are trying to take conscious steps to make it clear that they are not the owners of those churches, even though they were instrumental by God to see them get founded and started, and that the, the ministry now has been organized, they've got some multiple leaders in place. They made it very clear that they were not the people who were going to somehow manipulate these churches uh, to their own self-advancement. Even though they founded them, they were wanted to make it very clear they were not the ones who were ultimately responsible to see that all of those members of those churches grew to full maturity, grew to full completeness in Christ. They knew their limits. Do you know your limits as to what you're capable of doing? Limits when it comes to your family? Limits when it comes to your ability to impact someone, spiritually speaking? You see, these two men, they knew that they were unable to sanctify the believers that they had seen come to Christ. They knew that Christ was the one who actually had imparted to them eternal life, 
And they knew that ultimately Christ by the Holy Spirit would be the only one who could bring them to full maturity in the faith. And now for this to do a couple of verses that teach that, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, speak of the Holy Spirit, His role in sanctification. It's the Holy Spirit that uses the Word of God. The Holy Spirit uses the people of God in the local church. Think of the example of farmers. Farmers are hard-working people. They work very hard to prepare the soil, right? They go out and they till up the ground. They break it all up. They get, make sure that the weeds are all of last year's plants are no longer there. They prepare the soil. Then they plant all these seeds. And then they fertilize the ground and making sure it has the nutrients it needs to, uh, to make sure that there's plenty of, of nutrients there in that soil. But at some point, a farmer in all their hard work realizes the what? I've reached the extent of what I can do. I can't control the sun. I can't control the clouds. I can't control how much rain we get. And so there's, a, there's an element of which a true farmer at some point says, I've done all I can do. I've worked hard. I've put all those things in place. But now I'm waiting for God to bring forth a harvest as a result of the labors I've sought to invest. There's certain things that only God can do. And I think that's a good reminder. As you look at this text, you realize that these two guys are commending these people to the Lord. I wonder how many of us are willing to say, I want to commend my spouse to the Lord in prayer. Saying, Lord, would you work in his heart? Would you work in her heart? These are areas in which she struggles. These are areas in which he's struggling. Look, Lord, I commend my children to you. I lay them before you. I'm saying, Lord, would you work in their hearts? Give them a desire. Give them the longings, the hungering thirst for righteousness. Do you do that for people around you because you realize you can't do that? You can't give people a heart for God. You can't give people a passion for the gospel. God-glorifying ministry is characterized by a humble admission that there are limitations as to what you or I can do as humans. God is the only one who can bring believers into conformity with the character of Christ. And the church is not a factory. You know, they talk a lot about manufacturing now. It seems to be the big, the big uh, talk now in, in politics is getting those factories going. Well, let's think about manufacturing. By the way, I do like that show, How Are Things Made? How's it made? You ever watch that? I think that's fascinating. My wife just goes to sleep like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I'm fascinated how they make things in a factory. Well, what do they do? They build these big machines, and the machines do repetitive actions again and again to either melt something or to bend something or to shape something or to hold it in a mold or whatever it is. And it just one after the other, precise duplication, precise efficiency, boom, 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 boom. Here they come right down the line and one thing after another, after another, after another. The church is not like that. We cannot find a human program of cranking out people who are somehow there and have a passionate love for Christ and who love other people and who become more like Jesus in the fruit of the Spirit just by some program that we somehow put in place. It's not going to happen. And I reread Ephesians 4 in my preparations and I began to realize the body of Christ is not just like a factory. It's, it's a body connected to a head. And it's the head of the body 
that brings about the growth in the body. Read it for yourself, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, where we read, We are to grow up in all aspects unto Christ, who is the head, and the head causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So what am I saying? God-glorifying ministry is characterized by prayer. If we are active, if we are doing lots of ministry and there's rather minimal or almost non-existent prayer that undergirds what we're doing, it's all of man. You see, the apostles here made it very clear that they were earnest in their prayer that God would do this work in these people's lives. And they made it earnest by fasting. It added another element of we're really very serious about our prayers. We're very uh, uh, desiring God to do this wonderful work. I won't talk a lot about fasting here, but I think it's just an intensity in their prayer life. But what I wanted to ask is, is the question, have you ever devoted yourself to a season of earnest, humble, sincere, focused prayer where you begin to say, well, I'm just going to start really seeking God of, for Him to do things I've been longing, I've been waiting, I know these things need to happen and I cannot bring them about. I'm going to seek God to see it done. One of the things we talked about at our last elder meeting is that we, we realize that we as a church should do this on a regular basis and so we're going to set aside, as Mike said earlier, that first full week of February, starting with the 5th of February on, on a Sunday, we're going to start on that day, and then we're going to encourage us as a church family to just be focused on prayer, seeking God. You say, well, why are you going to do that? Is that some sort of program you got in church? No, it's not a program. It's saying we are desperate to see God work in our hearts and in our church life and in our community. Because we realize we desperately need to see God do what only God can do. We're looking to see God stir us up toward holiness. To see God grant us a zeal for gospel ministry. To see God fill us with a passion to live for the glory of God. So we want to invite you. Join us in the ministry of commending each of our selves to the ministry of prayer, focused for that week. But there's something else we want to encourage you to do as elders that we are currently doing. I want to give thanks uh, to our brother, uh, Ron Plasinski. He was so helpful in encouraging us to, to pursue this as a pattern in our church, is to pray through our membership role on a regular basis. And so we've prepared, and we'll give you further copies if you'd like to have one, of the list of all the members of this fellowship. And we are committing ourselves to pray daily. We, uh, my wife and I pray for two names every day. As elders, we take a chunk of those, two people per elder. Every elder meeting, we sit down, we devote time to pray through this. Some of you are starting to get emails, and you'll hear from us saying, how can we pray for you? That's a practical way, is it not, to say, I love you enough to say, I'm concerned to see God work in your heart and life in ways that I can't make happen. I can't fix all your problems. I can't increase your faith. I cannot help you with your struggles in some ways, but God can. And so we pray for each other. 
And in our prayer list, we go through the list, then we put a little mark there, and then we add a little mark to that. And so you add another little mark each time you go through there so you'll know where you are to keep going. It's a wonderful ministry. It doesn't take long, but it reminds us that we are a family. We are committed to each other. Seeking God to work in each other's hearts. Have you done that with your family? How about your own biological family? Do you pray through the people of your family, asking God to work in them? Take the scriptures, take a verse of a prayer that Paul's prayed and say, Lord, I want you to do that in this person's life. And keep praying that. Asking that God would work in their hearts. Because only God can calm a person's fears. You can't, I can't. Only God can embolden someone with their witness for Christ. Only God can can soothe the sorrows that someone may be just drowned with at this point in their life. Only God can, can set us free from sin's bondage. Only God can grant victory over certain temptations. And so I urge us, how can we glorify God? Be a people of prayer, humble prayer. Can I just encourage you at this point, take your finger hold there in, in Acts, go back here to Second Chronicles. There is a Chronicles in your Bible. Yes, there is. It's those crisp pages there, still stuck together maybe for some of you. I know I'm talking about some of you have actual Bibles with real pages. For those of you on your phones or your tablets, uh, find your way back to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is such a wonderful verse, and I want to encourage you to write it down, to meditate on it as a thought of where do I go with today's sermon in terms of what I do. Why do we pray? Well, Jehoshaphat heard the news that he's got the Moabites, the Ammonites. He's got people plotting to attack him. He's afraid that they're going to be destroyed. He's in a crisis. And so what does he do? Well, he starts praying. The prayer is recorded there for you. I want us to skip down to verse 12. If you have never underlined this verse or highlighted it on your tablet or underlined your Bible, boy, what a great verse to underline and to meditate on. It says, O oh, our God, will you not judge them, that is, these people over here who are trying to plot our destruction, for we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Do you understand what it is to feel powerless in certain areas of your life? That you're weak or that someone else is weak? And then he says this, nor do we know what to do. We don't have all the answers. But our eyes are on you. That's God glorifying. Am I, am I missing something here? Do you agree with me? To pray is to bring glory to God by saying, we don't have all the answers. We don't know exactly what to do. We don't have all the abilities to pull it off. So we're looking to you. What a great way to live your life in humble, prayerful pursuit of God. I hope that you'll further ponder that and say, Lord, would you begin that in me? Just help me day by day just to start in that direction, little by little. You don't have to sit there and pray for 45 minutes. I'm not saying you do that. I hope you do if you do. But if you don't, start with three or four things to pray about and seek God. Point number six. In verses 24 to 28, I'm back now in Acts 14. 24, 28, finish the chapter. 
Paul and Barnabas passed through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier. That was the, uh, the wrong Antioch I had there. Now they're back to their home base. Uh, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Now here's what I got out of that verse. Particularly verse 27. God-glorifying ministry gives a principled promotion of God's supremacy in all things in order to avoid the pitfall of pride. There's a danger always that we can be doing all the right things. We are doing the things that God calls us to do and be faithful at those, but there's always a danger of having a, an ego problem and having a, an elevated sense of importance to ourselves. So notice that Paul and Barnabas courageously retraced their steps going back through some of these cities where people had thrown them out and, and stoned them and uh, had all, uh, big crowds were, were ready to um, oppose them so strongly. They refused to be intimidated, and they go all the way back to their home base. And why did they go back there? Because they want to give a report. They are accountable to these people. They are saying, you're part of our team. You're the one that helped in terms of God is commissioning us through you. And so we're going back to report to you because we are part of our team. And mind you, they obviously did not have the benefits of email, right, or texting or Instagram, or they didn't have Facebook to send all kinds of photos and updates along the way. So they've been gone a while, probably six, eight, ten months, maybe a year. I don't know. But would you notice how they gave the report? Letter B in your notes. They were carefully, deliberately determined to give God credit for what was accomplished during their church planting adventure. Now, if you reread chapter 13, you reread chapter 14, how many different amazing experiences they went through. There's, you know, there's a long list of things that Paul and Barnabas could have focused their report on. Well, we chose to do this at that point. And we, we, we had these kind of conversations, and this was what Paul said, and this was what Barnabas said. And, and then we decided to do this. When they, when they did this to us, then we responded this way, and we faced all these dangers. And you'd be amazed. Well, Paul, no, they didn't say all those things. I'm sure they did recount some of the details. But they could have drawn attention to their own bravery. They could have drawn attention to their own breakthroughs that, that had been achieved on their long trip. But notice the key phrase of verse 27. When they arrived and they gathered together as the church back in Syrian Antioch, the whole church gathers. Not, isn't that interesting? Not just the faithful few who had prayed. The whole church gathers and they began to report all the things that God had done with them. If you don't want, again, underlying, that's an underlying phrase. That God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They are not there boasting about themselves. They are giving God the credit. He had accomplished much through them. And what they're realizing is that the God who had set them apart by the Holy Spirit 
The God who had sent them out by the Holy Spirit, says in verse 13, chapter 13, was the same God who brought about the breakthroughs when they brought the gospel into these very cities. It was the power of the Spirit of God using the Word of God, using prayer. And admittedly, gospel ministry is carried out by mortals like you and me. Yes, we, do, we have to be involved in doing what we are called to do. But God does the work of saving people. God does the work of sanctifying people. God does the work of setting people apart for ministry. And the only boasting in ministry is boasting in what? In God and His grace. 1 Corinthians 1.31 So I conclude with these questions. Do people who know you, the people that hear you talk through the week, do they ever hear you give glory and credit to God for what's happening in your life? Do they ever hear you talk about the fact that God has enabled you to accomplish whatever you've accomplished in your life? The different assignments and ministry that you have, whether it be in your home or in here at church or whether it be in your job, in your neighborhood, in your school. And thereby, do you ever ask for prayer? Because when you ask for prayer, you're saying, I need help. I am not sufficient for these things. I am not a person who's able to do anything and everything. I need help. And do you ever admit your failings? Do you ever admit your weaknesses? Do you ever admit your struggles? That's one way in which we sort of convey to people, I want to give glory to God because I am not the end all. I am not a person who's a super saint. I'm not a person who is to be commended and given all this credit and glory because apart from God, Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That's not to say we should be doing nothing. It just means that we can't ultimately accomplish spiritual good on our own. So I'm just going to conclude with giving you an opposite of what I've given you in your notes, your three main points here, and say, ministry that robs God of His glory is led by power-hungry, autocratic leaders Ministry that robs God of glory is prayerless. And ministry that robs God of His glory is oftentimes a ministry that is magnifying man-centered activity rather than magnifying the greatness, the glory, and the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to meditate upon this portion of your word. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to bring it down to our little world, to our own families, to our own friends, to the people that we interact with, Lord. Help us to see that uh, what a wonderful ministry we can have of prayer, a prayer ministry that's based not on how well we pray, but a a prayer ministry that's rooted in the glories of the gospel that says that we are forgiven people who now have access to you and can talk to you about anything and everything and that you listen to us and that you're pleased with us even when we're imperfect. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for many of us who have our egos in the middle of everything we do and who oftentimes are striving to show that we are people who are 
strong and independent and we can do things on our own. We don't need people around us. We like to be aloof. We like to be disconnected. We like to be doing things on our own. Lord, forgive us. Draw us into interdependence with each other and most of all, a very humble dependence upon you. Help us to learn to humble ourselves, to ask for prayer. Help us to learn to get out of ourselves and pray for other people. Lord, we pray that you would also give us greater boldness and clarity of speech so that we might make it very clear when anyone gives us a compliment or when people are noticing things about us that they so easily want to commend us for, Lord, help us to be quick to give glory to you. Not in a showy way, but in a humble, honest acknowledgement that we are nothing apart from you. Make our church and make us, we pray, a God-glorifying ministry partners that really gives glory and honor to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.